Welcome, everyone. I appreciate you joining us for the Innovators Podcast Series, Where Innovators Flourish. My name is Allison Doyle, and I'm the Associate Director for the Iowa State University Research Park, and I'm also the host of the Innovators Podcast Series. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Innovators Podcast from the Iowa State Research Park. I'm Allison Doyle, Associate Director of the Research Park, and today I am joined by Dr. Pat Schnabel. Pat, can you take a second to introduce yourself? Sure. I wear multiple hats at Iowa State. I'm a professor in the Department of Agronomy. I also direct the Plant Sciences Institute here, and I'm a serial entrepreneur. So we could probably spend a podcast episode on each of those hats that you wear. Um, but today we're going to talk about the entrepreneur hat and specifically dive into your latest company, um, Dryland Genetics. And I believe we'll also foray into talking about a couple of other companies that you have your fingers in. But let's start with Dryland. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell me the story of, of how this all came to be? I know it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. You have your son involved. and. Yeah. It's very spirited sort of adventure. So James Schnabel, my son, is a professor at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's also in the plant sciences, like I am. And we've started other companies before. But in 2014, he was conducting an experiment in the greenhouse where he had planted a number of different crops. And he collected some tissue and did some molecular analysis on those. Forgot about the plants. Uh, a month later, the greenhouse manager called him up and said, you know, you really got to get rid of this stuff. Clean it out. So he went over there, and everything had died. All the crops had died except for one. Of neglect. Of no watering. They yeah. just hadn't been watered through neglect because they were, they were waste material at that point. But proso millet was still alive, and it was not only still green, it had gone through its life cycle and produced a small amount of seed on each one of these terribly uh, drought-stricken plants. So that got him interested in this. He did a little research reading about prosomillet, and it turns out to be the most water-efficient crop in the world, and that's measured as the amount of gallons of water used per pounds of grain produced. So he came home for Christmas and told me, you know, Dad, this is really cool, and, and we talked a lot about it to the annoyance of my wife and the rest of the family. We talked about prosomillet, but I finally said, you know, we should start a company. The world is running out of water, and how are we going to continue to provide a stable food supply for everybody with less water? So there really are maybe two strategies, right? One is you take a high-yielding crop like corn and you make it more water efficient, or you take a relatively low-yielding crop like prosomillet. There's been essentially no genetic improvement on it, so it's like corn of the 1930s. So you could start with that, which is already water efficient, and increase its yield. And that's the strategy we thought we would take, because there are lots of big companies spending lots of money trying to make the major crops more water efficient. But I think it's easier to increase yield of a crop like millet than increase water efficiency of a crop like corn. So talk to me about prosomillet. Yeah. Why prosomillet? I know in past conversations that you and I have had, yep. you talked about how it's uh, almost a, a historical grain. I mean, is yep. that even the right way to Ancient refer grain, to we it? call it. Yeah, right. Um, and why does this make sense? Yeah. And so, why hasn't anyone else done this? Yeah. So prosomillet was domesticated in Eastern Asia thousands of years ago. It's, it's, it's an ancient grain. It has a very short life cycle. So compared to the major crops, it's, it's, it's quite a bit shorter from planting to harvest. So 90 to 120 days. So you can get it in the ground and you can get it out. So at that time, a lot of people were pastoral. They, they moved with the flocks. You could stop, though, in the summer for 
three or four months, grow a crop of millet, then pack up again and move your animals again. So it, it moved with the people as they moved with their livestock. So it moved from Eastern Asia into Western Asia, Eastern Europe. And then when um, Eastern Europeans started coming to, and Europeans generally started coming to the United States, they brought it with them. And the people who came and the time they came, the land that was available was in the Western Great Plains. So the Eastern Europeans uh, brought with them proso millet. We started growing it in the Western Plains where it's very dry and uh, that water efficiency is, is valuable. That has some consequences though. It's gone through what are called genetic, this crop has gone through what are called genetic bottlenecks. So there's the diversity of the crop where it was first domesticated, but then only a subset of the plants moved west into Europe and even a smaller subset moved to the U.S. So there's very little genetic diversity in the U.S. for this crop. And genetic diversity is an essential component of plant breeding. What plant breeders do is they take the, the DNA and they mix it up from different parents, producing new types of, of proso millet, and select the best ones. But if everything's already the same, there's no, you don't get any success here. So people have tried breeding proso millet before in the U.S., but they haven't been particularly successful. And we believe that was because they didn't have the genetic diversity they needed. So this is essentially, I mean, for the common yeah. lay person that might be listening, like if we're talking about breeding dogs, yeah. you essentially have purebred dogs of the same yeah. sort, same seeds. That's yes. all you're working with as opposed to all going and diversifying and yeah. bringing all the dogs. That's a great example. If you started with Dalmatians and you breed Dalmatians, you're going to get Dalmatians, and it's hard to make a lot of improvement. Uh -huh. But if you took, like you said, the whole go to a dog park and take all the dogs and different sizes and types, you could do some breeding and you could get any kind of animal you wanted. You could get big ones, small ones, mm -hmm. long fur, short fur. It's all there. So what we did at Dryland was went out and captured the global diversity of this crop. We brought it all together. Now, that's not a new idea. That's what the big seed companies do also mm -hmm. for, for the other crops. But that's what we did here, and, and that accounts uh, to a certain extent to the success we've had. So how long does this take, and, and how do you do it? Do you do it in a controlled environment? Yeah. Okay. So the, the basics of breeding are you make crosses, and then you evaluate the progeny to find ones that are even better than the parents, and then you cross those better individuals and repeat the cycle. Mm -hmm. So in many crops, what we do is we make the crosses, and then we have to get pure lines or nearly pure lines before we do the evaluation. So that can take a number of generations. We've found ways of speeding up the life cycle of proso millet, so we can get five to six generations a year. So consequently, in um, you know, a matter of single-digit years, we can go from crosses to varieties being commercialized. So that's really sped up the breeding process. So in the context of a startup, and um, it's fail fast <laughs> for a whole bunch of different reasons. Exactly. Um, you know, even though we've shortened that breeding cycle substantially, it's a long cycle for a startup. You know, we're not like a software company where we can produce a new version in three months. Sure. We had to first establish that we could increase yields. That was our first de-risking step for the company, that we can increase the yield of this crop. So you had to increase the yield of the crop because although it can grow in quite dry locations, western Colorado, or yep. eastern Colorado probably, yep. western Nebraska, That's right. um, there hadn't been enough volume or yield coming from the crop to justify a farmer putting in rotation. There wasn't enough commodity pricing wasn't high enough. Why? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a second level. The, the idea was 
if we could increase yields, we could capture the existing market. We could okay. convince farmers to grow our varieties rather than what's out there already. Now, that's the first step. Um, mm-hmm. And let me say that we've increased yields 10 to 40 percent, which at 20 percent yield increase, farmers double their per acre profit. Oh, wow. So it is not a hard sell to get farmers to try this once they believe that they're going to get a 20, 10 to 20 percent yield increase. That's easy. So the first step in our, in our strategy was to capture as much of the existing proso millet market, which is under a million acres in the U.S., capture as much of that as possible. And that's, we're, on, we're, not, we're not there yet, but we're on the way, and it's, that's straightforward. What's realistic? I mean, is it 80%? Is it? Probably something on that order. Okay. There will be some guys who don't want to pay for seed. Yeah, change just, is hard. <laughs> yeah, change is hard. And there, there are people that will just be philosophically objecting to paying for something that they used to get free. The next step, and this is the phase we're, we're looking at now, is to grow that million acres, a little less than a million acres, grow it to something like 10 million acres. There's lots of land in the western Great Plains and further west into the mountain states that just don't have enough water to sustainably grow crops like corn, cotton, alfalfa, and so forth. And we see already transitions happening. Western Kansas, lots of corn is grown there, but it's under center pivot irrigation. Mm-hmm. And those wells are starting to go dry. This has been predicted for decades that that would happen. Those farmers are going to need to transition to something else. We think proso millet is a viable opportunity for them. What do, I mean, what do you use millet in? Yeah, so it is basically a drop-in substitute for corn. The composition is almost identical to corn, oh, wow. which is, you know, that makes it easy. It can go into animal feed. We and others have shown you can use it instead of corn for, for laying hens, for broilers, for feeder pigs, for cows. It is a drop-in substitute. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's also gluten-free? It is gluten-free, which is another nice thing. Yes. Um, We're working with uh, some ISU folks on uh, testing it for making gluten-free beer. Oh, wow. So that's, you know, that's not going to be a big market, but it's it's one that people uh, find fun. Have you tried it? I have not tried it. It's in the process. We just delivered the grain about a month ago. Well, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up when you you get some samples. I think that would be a... We can try them on the next version of the podcast. But alcohol, uh, I mean, that's human consumption alcohol. You can also use it for making uh, industrial ethanol. And this we've looked at fairly intensively because if you grow proso millet in Iowa, in the rich soils of Iowa, and we do do seed production here in Iowa, you don't need to add any nitrogen fertilizer. There's enough conversion of organic matter to available nitrogen in the soils in Iowa every year to support a crop. So we can grow very good yields of proso millet in Iowa with no nitrogen fertilizer. The consequence is that starting in 2025, the federal government is going to give ethanol plants a substantial credit for low carbon intensity feedstocks. So if they were to use proso millet grown in Iowa without nitrogen fertilizer, the federal government would give the ethanol plant a, a, a credit, which would make it economically competitive with corn. So would you grow this um, in rotation with corn or instead of? In Iowa? Yeah. Uh, it is not going to replace corn. Corn and soybeans are not going away in Iowa. Mm-hmm. That's not, we're not even, we're not foolish enough to, to pitch that. But as, as a third crop, farmers are hungry. We've heard this uh-huh. from them. They're hungry for a third crop. This would give them, yeah, more complex rotations, which are good in terms of insect and weed control to have more plants, different crops in the rotation. But it also provides what's called asset and labor efficiency. So corn is planted first in the spring, and then the farmers plant soybeans. Prosum millet is planted after the soybeans, 
which means the busy planting season for corn and beans is over. The machines, by the way, we use the same machines for planting proso millet as you use for corn and soybeans. So when the busy time for corn and beans are over, the machines are available, the labor is available, and then you can plant the proso millet. Okay. So this, this makes a farmer's life easier in terms of allocating both labor and, and equipment. And I, I was just going to say, and I'm assuming very big deal that you don't have to get all new equi- yeah, equipment that's as well. For so adoption. the barrier to adoption is it's, next to nothing. It is. It's very easy to grow. We've helped several people grow it for the first time, and it, it works. I mean, the first time they do it, it's easy, and it works. Out west, um, so in northeast Colorado and western Nebraska, it's typically grown in rotation with winter wheat. Now, the okay. winter wheat is a huge band on the western Great Plains. There's a lot of winter wheat grown, and sometimes they will fallow rotates. They'll plant winter wheat, and the next year there's nothing planted, but they have oh. to control weeds. They can put millet in instead because it doesn't take up a lot of water. So the, one of the reasons for a fallow is you get two years of rain concentrated in one crop year. Mm-hmm. But now you can, you can grow proso millet in that formerly fallow year, get a crop, and control the weeds at the same time. So it's a profit center instead of a cost center. So in the context of where the company is today, I mean, you're trying to establish a market for something that previously did not have a market. You're trying to establish superior breeding techniques where they haven't previously been for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you're trying to make a company that doesn't fail. So talk about that part for a minute. Yeah. So we have been extraordinarily lucky with hires. We're We're a very small company intentionally. So we outsource everything we can outsource because we recognize that, and ultimately, we're not going to run this for the rest of our lives. We'll be acquired at some point. Many of the potential acquirers are not going to want seed processing facilities and bags and warehouses and so forth. So we we outsource those activities, but we have to have key people. So we hired a guy named Santos Rajput. Dr. Santos Rajput was our number one hire, first hire, who was at the time probably the, the one of the best proso millet breeders in the world came out of the University of Nebraska. Uh, he is now, without a doubt, the most successful proso millet breeder in the world and probably the most successful proso millet breeder in history. Yeah, as I say, he's increased yields 10 to 40 percent. That was the first generation of uh, new varieties. There's another generation coming that are even a little better than that. We also hired a guy named Craig Anderson, who's had decades of experience in the seed industry in marketing and sales and operations. And so we brought him as our operations manager, and he's been fabulous. He works very well with the farmers. He goes out to Colorado and and Nebraska every month or two and meets with the growers and understands what they need and is able to, uh, to help them figure out which varieties they should grow on their farm. So what happens from here? Okay, well, so that was the the, the piece about increasing yields, the technical challenges, mm-hmm. getting it into the market. The next step really is growing that market. If, if we only capture that significant fraction of that 1 million acres, that, that's not enough. We need sure. to grow the market. So we've been working with some of the ethanol plants, thinking about how they could put proso millet into the mix. So because the composition is so similar to corn, it's actually very easy for them to just mix some proso millet in with the corn. They already do this with sorghum. So you can mix sorghum and corn in the plants, just depending on whatever's available. So is this typical in the space where you need to work out everything along the value chain, or does it, the more that you work out along the value chain increases the valuation of the company? So you're, it just behooves you to keep figuring more things out. Yeah, that's okay. right. Um, so who acquires a company like this? Like a Bayer? 
It could be a Bayer. Cargill. Yep. It could be a Cargill. It could be a food company. I could imagine. Let me talk about how this water efficiency plays out. Mm -hmm. So if you feed laying hens proso millet instead of corn, you save between 10 and 15 gallons per egg. So here's my vision is we've got a- Per egg? Per egg, 10 to 15 gallons of water. This is huge. If um, a company like Tyson, now going to broilers, if a company the size of Tyson switched to millet from corn, we would save 2% of the annual flow of the Missouri River. It's huge. I mean, this is huge. So lots of companies are talking about how they're going to save water. This would be a way to make a huge impact in water conservation. Where does that water go? So the water that's not used by agriculture replenishes wetlands for wildlife and and birds, the river flow. I mean, it's a good thing for the environment. Lots of good things. Lots of good things. (laughs) That's, that's exciting. Not to mention the environmental implications that you touched on earlier where you're not dumping a bunch of nitrogen in your field because yes. you don't need it. That's, and this is, this is a big thing. There's the carbon intensity. It's about half, I think I mentioned this, about half the carbon intensity of corn. So it uses half as much CO2 or produces half as much CO2 equivalent um, as corn would, which is a greenhouse gas. Not included in those calculations are the nitrous oxide, which is produced by applying nitrogen fertilizer. That's a much more potent greenhouse gas. So it has a big impact on, on global climate change, too. So it not only has the potential to reduce the global climate change, but because it's water efficient, it's going to help us adapt to the climate change that is coming with reduced rainfalls or more erratic rainfalls. So if um, somebody from Tyson, just to follow along your example, yeah. is listening to this, why, what's the barrier to them stopping, I mean, making a call and saying yeah, let's 12 try gallons it. per egg, hello, what are yes. we doing here? Let's try this thing out. So exactly. is it supply isn't where it needs to be right now because you haven't scaled up? Yeah. So in the past, prosomellet was grown almost exclusively in northeast Colorado and western Nebraska. That meant that if they had a drought in that area, I mean, droughts still affect prosomellet too. Yields will go down, prices will go up. So there have been a couple of price spikes. Mm. And that's scary to somebody who's using a lot of a particular crop. Because that many chickens. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to deal with that. It's, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, shifting the feed of a, of a large livestock operation is a, is a challenging thing to do. So they don't like to, they like stability. Mm-hmm. Like most of us. I mean, we'd like to be able to plan for the future. So the strategy we're taking here is to expand the growing area. So we've generated about 10,000 different lines of prosomillet variety, I mean, pre-varieties, which didn't make the cut for commercial release in Colorado and Nebraska. But they have attributes, some of them, have attributes that would work for further north in the Dakotas or further south. So we've got some growers in even in Kansas and Oklahoma that are using the varieties we developed for Colorado. But we have in our collection almost certainly varieties that are even better adapted to Kansas and Oklahoma. We've also been asked to test our varieties in the Pacific Northwest. So we have this, this huge collection of varieties. We just need to go test them in these different locations, find the best ones, and allow for a greater ge- geographical distribution of the growing area, which will reduce the risk of crop failure that we would have in only one area, which should reduce the risk of a, a price spike. Sure. So that would be a big thing. For More supply, closer to the source. of Closer to the source and less yeah. risk of, of yeah, price spikes. So that will help drive adoption. How long does this all take? Maybe a couple more years to, but we've got everything ready. So we actually tested this year in Dakotas, Pacific Northwest, Oklahoma. Well, we've been testing in Kansas anyway. So we've been testing in these locations. 
we could probably do more testing. We will do more testing before we release. But we've, we've got candidate varieties for some of these places already. So that's exciting. Let's come back to, to, to adoption by a feeding company. Though. Let's come mm-hmm. back to the Langhan example. You can print, you can put ink on eggs now. Maybe you've oh, seen it. I have. You could put a droplet, have a, a, an outline of a water droplet, and inside you could write 12 gal, G-A-L, like gallons. So every time a consumer buys a carton of eggs, they open it up and there's 12 gallons, 12 gallons, 12 gallons. As you're fixing breakfast for the kids, every fried egg is 12 gallons of water saved. I mean, convincing a child to eat another fried egg, that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, immediately where my head goes is the whole narrative around grass-fed, pen-raised, whatever. I mean, that is on every carton of eggs that you buy now. It stipulates how those little suckers were raised. Yes. And if you talk to anybody in the business, though, they have varying explanations yes. about what that really means and mm-hmm. what have you. This is something that is, I mean, yes. you see in your mind 12 gallons of water, you know, sitting in front of you. That's significant. That's a, it is. How much water does it take for, does it take 13 gallons? I mean, what's the number now on oh, average? Oh, I, I, I don't, you know, we know. I mean, somebody in the organization knows. I don't know off the top of my head. So I don't know what percentage reduction it is. Um, but, but it's 12 gallons is a lot it's, of water. It's substantial. And, you know, this is not just for eggs. Pork chops, same thing. We've calculated how uh-huh. much water you save per pork chop. You can imagine, you're asking about acquisition or acquirers. Uh-huh. I could see a food company doing this too, right? Because you could put prosomillet into snack foods and breakfast uh-huh. cereals. And again, you could have that water drop on the, the box, the uh-huh. consumer-facing box, as you were saying. And people will, uh, will make those choices to, to help save water and help the environment. And not to mention the number of people that, even if they haven't been diagnosed with something, just don't want to have as much gluten in their diet. That's right. Um, That's right. For diversification purposes. Wow. So this, I mean, this seems like a pretty good gig. <laughs> you've got going. Yeah. It, it's one that's easy to explain to people. Uh-huh. You know, pre-pandemic, I was on the plane a lot for various things. And, you know, I'd sit next to people and, you know, you get talking. I never met anybody who thought this was a bad idea. Right. I mean, they got it fairly quickly. It, it's a good idea. So your headquarters for the company is sort of split between Nebraska and the research park, from what I understand, or is nucleus of it in the research park? When we first uh, established the company, it was a Nebraska company. We very quickly, after a few months, converted it to, a, to an Iowa LLC, mm-hmm. and its headquarters is at the ISU Research Park. We raised money in, in 2014 and, and really started operations in 2015, approached the park, about getting some space. We had very particular requirements. Um, We have these indoor facility, growing facilities where we make the crosses and where we do some of our our, uh, propagation of the crop. So we needed to build a room that had all the requirements we needed for that. And the park was extremely accommodating. They gave us almost bare space, which is what we needed, and said, go at it. And so we we customized it uh, to meet our needs. And we've been there since 2015. So how do you anticipate, are you fully funded? Are you still fundraising? Where are you at right now? Yeah, so we are, we are growing our market. We're on somewhere between 5 and 10% of the acres uh, in the U.S. already, which is a fairly fast adoption rate uh-huh. for this kind of thing. This year, the crops, our varieties, did very well compared to the competitors. I expect next year uh, we'll see further expansion. Depending on some decisions we make, we may need to do another round of funding in a year, year and a half, something mm-hmm. like that. But it, we won't need much. We, we will be profitable with all projections probably in two years. Right. So are you serial entrepreneur? Like this is just 
what happens when you're sitting around at Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner at your house, and so it, there's another one coming? This, this is a joke. We have, uh, my wife and I have FaceTime calls with our son James every weekend, and almost every weekend or two, we come up with another idea. So it's a little family joke at this point. You know, we could start a company for that. So I know for a fact that there's an, at least one other one, so yeah. why don't we take a couple minutes sure. to talk about, talk about those. Yeah, so another one is Ingenious Ag. This is a sensor company. So the invention here was created by an ISU faculty member, Leong Dong, who is an engineer. And he built sensors. That's what he does. If He likes challenges. So if you can explain there's something we need to sense in the world and it is important. He's your guy. That's, he gets excited about that. So he and his students work on those things. He's uh, also a Plant Science Institute scholar, which is the, the Plant Science Institute that I direct. And so I got to know him uh, through that. And I said, you know, Leong, I mean... Nitrate is huge in agriculture. It's the second most expensive input for farmers in, in dry land conditions, so without irrigation, without irrigation um, right after seed. And the other thing that's really interesting is farmers don't know how much nitrogen to apply to a field. It's not consistent from year to year. It depends on the weather and cropping histories and things. So there's variation across fields and even within a field across years. Studies have come out that say up to a third of the acres in the Corn Belt don't respond to nitrogen in a given year. So the nitrogen that's applied to something between 10 and 30 percent of the acres each year is wasted. So that's a huge input cost for farmers that they don't need. And of course that nitrogen doesn't go away. It enters the environment with negative sure. consequences. So it's, if we could tell farmers exactly how much nitrogen to apply to a given field in a given year, it would save them money and it would benefit the environment. So Leon came up with a nitrate sensor. and with another ISU colleague, Mike Castellano, who's in the Department of Agronomy and who studies nitrogen cycle. He's a soil scientist. Mm -hmm. And James, again, we set up this company, Ingenious Ag, to commercialize a nitrate sensor. And it, it works. It, it tells us how much nitrogen is in the nitrate is in the stalk of a corn, a corn plant, and that's correlated with whether the plant needs nitrogen or not. Now, you can look at plants that are nitrogen-starved and they're yellow and stunted, but by then it's too late to fix it. This sensor tells you, while the plants all look the same, which ones are going to become nitrogen-starved, and then farmers can do side dressing. They can apply additional nitrogen. So what is this thing? Is it like attached to the corn? Is it in the ground? There are different versions. We have a handheld device that you stab a corn plant. It's a lot like putting a thermometer on the forehead at, at sure. the doctor's office. It just gives you an instant read of your body temperature. This one you stab it into the corn plant and get an instant read of the amount of nitrate in the corn stalk, and that allows farmers to make decisions about how much nitrogen to apply to their field, or whether they need to at all. So how many, I mean, in a typical field, how yeah. many do you have to stab yeah. to it's, get a good read on things? I mean, we're using about a dozen stabs per field at this uh -huh. point. We can do better. Eventually, we want an adaptive sampling strategy. So right now, the, the sensor can talk to an iPhone. The iPhone ultimately will talk to the cloud, and in the cloud, there'll be an analysis of the data in real time as they come in. So you can imagine you stab the first plant, and then the, the software tells you to you know, walk 100 feet to the east, stab another corn plant. The software is looking at a soil map and a cropping history map, and it's looking at the readings we get. Once it stops changing, we've sampled the variability that's in the field. We can stop, or we move to the next soil type in that field and do some more sampling. So there are ways to be smarter about how to sample. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the goals for the future. How does, is it all like someone walking around, you get on a gator, or how does this work yeah. now? Right now, it's, yeah, people walking around and stabbing. We are also working with, this is through Iowa State's 
AI Institute for Resilient Ag, mm -hmm. IRA, which is a USDA-funded $20 million project. So under the context of the umbrella of that, we're collaborating with engineers at other universities who have robots, and we can attach the sensor to the robot, and the robot moves to the field, senses, the, this is, we did this this summer, it was just amazing to watch this. The robot is in real time visualizing the, the, the plants in the row, identifies the plant to be sampled, an arm comes out, grabs the plant, and the sensor gets stuck in. You get a reading, the sensor comes out, and the robot moves on. So that's the future, is, is having robots Amazing. move through the field. Yeah. So where's this one at? We've uh, secured phase one SBIRs from both NSF and USDA. Those were completed. We're now on a phase two. This is a $1 million grant from the National Science Foundation to continue the development of the technology, particularly to move into some laboratory tests. This is another market. So when soil samples come in, it's a lengthy process to measure nitrogen in the soil samples. Mm -hmm. We can do it in, in seconds, and you can imagine a 12-plex head, so you can do a whole set of 12 samples at once in seconds in the lab. This would greatly speed up the processing. So similar to dry land, it sounds like you're exploring all these different Potential markets. Yes. of the market. Yes. And then the idea is that you'll see which part of the continuum you most want to play in or yes. where you need to leave where, certain where things behind yeah. and what have you. So a little earlier stage than yes. where you're at with dry land, but yep. why wouldn't you have two of them going at the same time, yes, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> we have, we have uh, the first one we did was Data to Bio, which is a, a genomic analysis company. So this one, the, the idea was customers would send us their tissue samples or DNA samples. We'd do next generation sequencing and do uh, statistical and bioinformatic analysis on the data, and give that to the uh, to the to the researchers, so they wouldn't have to do all that themselves. Because there's some pretty specialized computational skills involved, and so that one's a service company. It's uh, it's going absolutely fine, but it's not going to grow beyond a certain point because it, it requires a lot. It's not scalable. It requires a lot of founder time to. I was to just going to say, it needs yeah. to, sounds like there's some smart people that need to be on the other side of the curtain for exactly. that. Exactly. So that, that's <laughs> that's a that was that was a really uh, it was helpful for us to to learn that that we need things that are scalable from the outset. But we learned a lot from that. So I think that we're going to need to continue this conversation later. But in the interest of time, what's next for you? And any parting thoughts that you have? Yeah, there are a couple things. I mean, both of those, ultimately, the, the goal is, is exiting through acquisitions. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing. You know, our expertise is coming up with the ideas, de-risking them, proving the market, and then let's have another Thanksgiving where you come up another, with the next yeah, thing. Thanksgiving or Christmas where it's, it's coming. But in terms of thoughts about science, technology, engineering, and so forth, is workforce. We have a real problem right now. The U.S. has been dependent upon international students to feed into our STEM workforce, and that has, is drying up, and we need to figure out how to fix that, and it's not going to be easy because it's not a matter of convincing an undergraduate to apply to graduate school. This has to happen way earlier, and I think that's a big challenge for everything. I think in our next conversation that we should make the entire thing about workforce. Uh, we had a, a dynamic conversation before the podcast yes. started about this, and I think it would be interesting to hear some more of your thoughts and bounce some ideas around. So thank you for taking the time to do this today. It's been absolutely awesome, um, and hopefully we'll come and do an update soon. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, stay inspired.